Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. The topic of discussion today is how to navigate the debt minefield. On the agenda, we'll look at the Russian default and the current fallout. Then we'll explore the rising high yield spreads globally. Next, we'll touch on Chinese developer, rising credit default swap prices, leverage, hedge funds, and the implications of all these. Then we'll delve into the Australian funding availability, the cost of bank debt, and the effect of interest rates on house prices. And of course, as always, we'll cover the investment implications at the end. My name's Sam Kerr. I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. Our guest on the show today is Jonathan Rockford. He's a Portfolio Manager at Narrow Road Capital, which is involved primarily in Australian credit investments. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on, sir. Absolute pleasure to have you here. And as always, we've got uh, Damien Klassen, the Chief Investment Officer at Nucleus Wealth. Damo, great to have you as always. Hi, Sam. Good to see you. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, just a quick reminder before we get started. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or have a new episode recorded. Alternatively, you can follow us on your preferred podcast platform. Our show is available on all the majors. And for those of you listening live, feel free to drop your questions in the YouTube live stream chat, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. So now that we've got that bit of housekeeping out of the way, uh, we'll get into it. So Damien, I'll hand it over to you to get us started. Yeah, thanks. Look, well, we wanted to get Jonathan back on the show to really have a, a good run around uh, the, the debt markets and what's happening. There's there's uh, any number of things as you sort of read through that agenda. You know, it really stood out that we're jumping all over the place. Um, there is there is a lot happening at the moment. There's a lot of uh, potential uh, sort of landmines for investors sitting there, and uh, we sort of wanted to really grab jo uh, Jonathan because he's his job, I think, is avoiding landmines in in, uh, in the debt markets and, and sort of see where, where he's looking and, and, and what he's most concerned about. So um, what I thought I'd start with, Jonathan, is um, I thought I'd start overseas and then we'll gradually work our way back to Australia. Um, and it's pretty hard to go past uh, what's happening in Russia and, and the idea that, you know, will, will Russia default on its bonds? Um, does, you know, do, do they, they have been making payments, I think, but, yeah, there's a, there's a reasonable... Um, uh, thing that possibly they turn around and 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 try and make repayments in rubles. Um, and so yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in see what what you th you think the fallout there. You know, the, on on the Russian debt itself from from the I guess the government debt as opposed to let's get into corporates after that. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Damien. Um, Russia certainly is is a very very interesting situation with some unique features to it. Um, so I guess starting with has it defaultable? Not yet. Uh, so there has been some payments made recently. There was a fear that those payments would be blocked by sanctions. But those payments got through. They were um, interest payments uh, made in US dollars. And so thus far, they're still on track. Uh, and, and in a way, you actually want, if you're the US government, you actually want them to make those payments rather than default because you're essentially allowing their build-up in US dollar reserves to be transferred to overseas investors. So you're technically taking wealth away from them. So I think if the sanctions got really tricky and difficult and you stop them from making payments, you probably hurt yourself more than you hurt them. Um, some of the bonds do have a conditionality that allow payments in rubles. So that's one thing that could come up that some people might start receiving payments in rubles. 
Uh, and, and so, that, and let me get it straight. Then it's the so so I've I've lent money to a, to a Russian um, to the Russian government. They get, they pay me in rubles and say, "Here's your bank account." And it's now it's my problem to get the money out of the country. Um, and then I'm sort of stuck. My money's stuck there because of the sanctions. Hard to get out. Is that right? In most cases, they're trying to pass through to international uh, international investors. Yeah. So they are trying to get the funds out of the country. So there is the risk with sanctions that the payment system becomes so blocked for Russian banks, including possibly the Russian Central Bank, that they physically could not send funds through. They've not hit that point yet. Um, so thus far, they've been going to effectively the US government and saying, will you allow this payment through? So someone like, say, JP Morgan, who's who's a custodian, um, is, is asking for that approval to allow the payment to go through and, and they're getting the approval to make uh, those pass-throughs. So that's happening. But uh, I guess there's two types of bonds. Most of the bonds, are you've borrowed in euros, you've borrowed in US dollars, you've got to pay in that currency. Um, but some of them include clauses that say, actually, if there's certain things happen, well, we can pay you back in rubles. And so that brings up an interesting issue there that, um, you know, would some be blocked and others still be payable because of the different currency features? Or, you know, have certain conditions been triggered that you might have thought you had a bond where you were going to get paid in euros or US dollars and you actually start receiving rubles, which in this situation, you know, the value of those is, is probably not good. And, you know, you then have the argument about, well, who's, whose exchange rate are you using when you're deciding whether you've received the correct amount of rubles or not? Mm. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of technicality in there, which we, we probably won't get started too much into the weeds on. Um, mm. But at this point, they haven't defaulted. And so, okay, so so Russia turns around and defaults. What's the uh, what is your expectation of of does that now freeze up the debt markets or or that you know I'm assuming a surprise default is obviously worse than a default that's been flagged for a number of months or at least at least a number of weeks. Um, yeah, yeah. What what are you sort of your your thoughts on I guess the immediate fallout? Yeah. Um... At the risk of being wrong and being like, uh, you know, a formal central banker, it, this one does look contained and, and probably there's a little bit of colour to that. Back in 2014, um, when Russia invaded Crimea, there was a bunch of sanctions that came in and, and Russia kind of learnt some lessons that didn't quite fully understand it all, but they sort of said, right, we, we need to build up our foreign currency reserves. We want to hold a lot more gold. Um, we want to be less dependent on overseas financiers. Um, we want to have a high level of independence. Um, and financially, they set themselves up quite well. The thing that they didn't bank on is that uh, effectively the US, Europe and other major economies would gang up on them and apply a whole range of sanctions. So in effect, uh, a lot of that foreign currency is locked up. Um, the gold, you know, you might be able to physically ship it to someone but can they buy it from you if there's a sanction there that says they can't buy it from you? Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, someone like China, uh, you know, would probably ignore that. Uh, someone like India has been happy to jump in and buy Russian oil at a 20% discount. Yeah. Uh, so they're happy to be a, a little bit of a bargain hunter in that space. But they've, they've been caught in this trap that they thought they had a good level of independence. Yeah. But through sanctions, um, financially, they've been able to lock Russia down quite a bit. And, and essentially, you could end up with a situation where they say, you know, perhaps there's a uh, some sort of a settlement agreement between uh, Ukraine and Russia, and those funds that are in international accounts 
you know, governments might say, okay, we're going to hand those over to the Ukrainians to build their country. You've, you've just lost that money. Mm. So those sort of situations are on the cards at the moment that the funds they thought they had, that if you had an asset and liability statement, you go, oh, yes, I pointed that, that's in a bank account there. Mm. Well, that bank account's not in your country, so you've lost control of it. Mm. Now, that's obviously, for, for the Russian government, that's that's one thing. For Russian corporates, I guess it's a completely different thing again, or, or international companies that have sort of big Russian divisions. So in terms of the, the debt market, um, for the emerging market corporate debt, are there any sort of major issues that people are worried about? In you know, we'll, get, we'll move to China later, but is it just within Russia? I think largely no. People are not too worried. So that that independence, that that lessening of uh, international financing, uh, means that there's less people who are holding bonds that they they would be concerned about. Um, in terms of emerging market debt funds, um, if you go into anything emerging markets, whether it's shares, debt, or otherwise, you know there's always these sorts of risks there. Um, you're often you know, <laughs> oh. there are investors who, who who wander in. I'm sure every time, going no, this time is different. No, no, Russia is part of the world economy now. This is they'd never do that to Russia. Yeah. So emerging markets, you're always dealing with the risks of you know wars. One um, hyperinflation. You know the Venezuela, Zimbabwe is the world is, is another one. Um, so there's always if you look at the emerging markets, yeah. If um, people, countries just get upset with other countries and lock down capital and do all sorts of things like that. So, you know, emerging markets, you, you just get punched when you're in that space. Mm-hmm. And when things go well, it's great, but you, you know there's going to be punches coming at you when you invest in emerging markets. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can get a 20% interest rate in Russia at the moment, can't you? If you can get, <laughs> if you can get paid and your capital back, then that's a 20% sounds pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah. To, to be honest, I... Uh, I probably think it's much more the the sanctions and the ability of corporates to function is is probably a greater concern. Mm. So with not huge amounts of international debt relative to other situations, it it really is the simple things that we're we're starting to learn again um, of how interdependent the whole world is that the supply chain issues. Um, One little anecdote I read was, uh, I think there was a sort of ozone gas that's used in semiconductors, and they're saying 70% of it comes from Ukraine. Mm. Um, It's all those sorts of things where you go, one part out of 100, and we're getting it from Ukraine or Russia, and all of a sudden your supply chain might be completely thrown out of whack. Your ability to produce the end product might be gone. So I think in many ways, it's much more the the trade side of things, the ability to co- of corporates to function and do regular things has been quite impacted. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then there's, um, okay. So, so, so at the moment, you know, as I said, to, to, not to put you in, in Ben Bernanke's shoes, but it does look as if things are contained at the moment, but you know, there's always the risk that, uh, of miscalculation on this. So I won't, uh, yeah, I won't, I won't, we won't hold you to task for that, but, um, one of the things that's, that is that has sort of popped up a lot recently is this idea of um, you know financial plumbing issues in terms of saying okay there's a there was a large owner of you know what is it a 750 million US dollars or was it I don't know, half a billion sorry half a trillion US dollars was it that that they had set up that's been taken out now you know was that money um, being you know used to to, to back other money and is it being lent out in different places and money markets and and all these types of issues about um, other things just happening that by blocking up various areas of the plumbing that you don't realize that pressure now builds up in a different area and, and the pipe breaks somewhere else and next thing you've got 
you know, financial um, stresses coming out of this. And so we've certainly seen a few of the um, interbank markets, not at you know, crazy levels, but they're certainly you know, double or triple what they used to be um, you know, pre, pre this happening. Are there any particular areas, I guess, in terms of the financial plumbing that you're, you're focused on in terms of trying to work out whether something's going to go wrong? Yeah, so probably the first order would be European banks who have Russian operations. Um, so they're, they're in a very tricky situation. You know, you, you read the comments from the CEOs, they're effectively saying, look, we've got deposits, we've made loans, uh, we cannot walk out of this country. We've got thousands of employees, we're not going to dump them overnight. So as a bank, how do you even wind down a business in a country in, in any reasonable space of time? You're talking years. To, to really um, cl close up shop. And so I think for many corporates and, and, and many, many banks, they're looking at the situation and saying, look, what can we get away with? Uh, so we might wind down our activities. We might say we're not doing new business, but we've got to stay there. We've got to keep a whole bunch of infrastructure in place. And there's bills that, that we've got to pay. There's contracts we've signed, we've got to deliver. So they might wind down, but um, they might stop doing new business, but for a lot of them, the footprint is there. So it's it's very difficult to, to just completely jump out. So someone like McDonald's that says, okay, the stores aren't open, but we're going to keep paying our employees. Well, how long does that last? You know, I think there's a lot of people who, in the business sense, are punting on um, a peace deal being reached fairly quickly. Um, and then people say, okay, uh, I can quietly go back to, to normal business there. Well, and and that's like BHP, no, not BHP, BP and um, uh, and Shell, with they're saying, okay, we've got our, we've got these big holdings over there. Okay, we're not doing any more with, with, uh, we're not doing any more with Russia. But the reality is, you can't sell it. Like so, so you, it's basically you're saying, I'm just going to hide this away in an area of my balance sheet and pretend it's not there until I can actually genuinely go in and sell it or write it down or do whatever it takes. But it's, it's a um, uh, you, you know, I guess the issue is if you're trying to punish um, Russia uh, by then turning around and and saying, "Hey, here's a free, um, you know, I own whatever it is, 25 percent of Rosneft. Let me let me give that back to you for free." Is is not really a punishment for for, for the people involved? Yeah, I, I think at the main at this point in the main, people are just trying to say, "Look, um, we're, we're stopping doing new things, uh, and we'll see how it plays out." Um, Probably the on the second second order effects, one of the interesting things to watch has been the commodity markets spike spikes in a lot of the commodity prices, and commodity trading trading houses are now starting to squeal about the margin requirements that come with that. Um, so, uh, probably most people have read about what happened with the nickel price and the nickel price blowing out and a short squeeze there because um, one of the uh, big nickel producers from China had had. Forward sold essentially a lot of his production, so we're we're seeing things like that. But the commodity trading houses have started going to the central banks and saying, "Hey, can we have a liquidity facility just like the banks do? We're really important as part of the economy that the, that we trade these commodities. Um, so give us some cheap funding so that we can cover all these margin calls we're getting." And that that's a very tricky one. I mean, to me, I, I see a lot of central banks just saying, "Sorry, you, you're not that important." Um, get your own funding. Uh, but there are a lot of things, a lot of derivatives that are tied up in those situations. Um, there is a fair amount of leverage involved. So 
those are the ones where it's tricky. Um, we just don't know if there will be situations where people get caught on the wrong side of commodity price move, get wiped out, and then there's some some ripples that flow through to other things. So what one to watch um, with, with no real idea, you know, of who, who's long, who's short, but one where if there's more sort of ructions there, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Mm. Uh, I mean, last time, uh, sorry, when when we had long-term capital management blow up, that was sort of uh, triggered initially by um, by Russian um, uh, Russian debt. And, and let me just, I mean, I guess my my understanding of that was that basically a a hedge fund that was taking some absolutely massive bets uh, and very you, you would call them very low risk bets in the US, basically. Going long the the nine and a half year bond and short the ten year bond in the US and basically waiting for the two to 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 flip around. Um, so, but but with with oodles and oodles of leverage, and then decided to um, to also start supplementing their income by by trading in in emerging market debt blew up over there, which then created all these problems in the US debt market because they were just using so much leverage. Um, there seems to be a lot of leverage around today, and I'm assuming people have uh, have, have read about long-term capital management if they weren't at least around at the time to to to, to see it. Um, I guess is that the type of thing you're, you're saying? You know, is is the type of lot where you get a hedge fund blow up its its commodity trading book, and then you know dominoes start falling in other areas. Is it? That, that's entirely possible, but but also drawing on um, LTCM. You know, some of the things that they got into there, so for instance, one of the things that was maybe lesser known, but in the late stages, they started doing uh, merger arbitrage. So, you know, two two companies are going to merge, so you sell one stock and buy the other, and you're essentially taking the bet that those prices will converge at a certain point at a certain ratio, and, and you'll be able to clip the ticket. Um, but if the merger falls apart, then the spread widens and, and you take a loss. Uh, so they, when they were sort of 25, 30 times leverage and you're, you're playing games like that, they, they very quickly um, can can go wrong on you. I, I guess maybe the lesson there, and this, this does apply today, is that when you have a lot of leverage and you're doing a lot of things where you, you're trying to eke out small spreads, but you do it with a great deal of leverage, so the overall return looks okay, those spreads can bump around and when you multiply it by the leverage, you can be blown out of your positions. So those are the sorts of things where, you know, uh, you know, maybe there are some hedge funds that have got into those trades. Certainly the, uh, the Archegos story from last year was an example of that where they were using a lot of leverage on shares and they got blown out of positions and, and banks ended up taking some losses mm. because they didn't, uh, didn't have enough collateral supporting the positions. Um, so it, it wouldn't surprise if, yeah, something like commodities, but if there's just a general squeeze on liquidity and a general squeeze that, as you mentioned, like that nine and a half, 10 year treasury bond kind of play, you know, it might be a five basis point gap, but it blows out to 40 basis points because people are just not interested in trading. And maybe in a small way, we saw a little well, bit of that last and, week. And also trading against. Once they knew that was a position, then then it was a, I know these guys are going to crack if I can push the push it wider. And so everyone trades against it. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So I think last week, we probably saw a little bit of that. Um, certainly in the credit markets, the spreads really bounced out quite a bit 
uh, in the credit default swap space. And then it's wound back quite a lot. So maybe we saw that kind of blow through last week. And I mean, it's always helpful to get these situations where you get a shock to the system. People reassess, you know, have I got too much leverage? Can I manage through these positions? And and sort of they pull back a little bit on their risk tolerances. It's always helpful to get those in, in regular doses, not too strong, but, you know, a decent one. And then people kind of are reminded that a lot of the things that, that happen in finance where you, you build a nice bell curve and you talk about your standard deviations, well, we always get those long tail events happening way too frequently. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a, a good reminder of the world is not, if you, if you think the world is normally distributed, then we've had, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, these talk about, oh, it's a one in hundred year flood. There's another one in the hundred year flood tomorrow and another one next year. And it's like, well, yes, okay, maybe, maybe they're not really one in a hundred years. Maybe you've got your, maybe it's your models wrong. Um, uh, so the other thing then within that, um, so you spoke a little bit about CDS there. So yeah, so we have seen, um, yeah, that CDS prices rise and, and then again, you know, come back a little bit. I guess implications in terms of whether there's anything else that's going to, because, you know, I guess I guess it's a question for, for me now, um, is if we're looking at a market that's got a lot of leverage in it and then volatility suddenly spikes up, or prices of, of debt and things like that, then people who were taking bets by going, you know what, I'm going to do this leveraged bet on on a, on a some sort of debt, but I'll buy some CDS, which will remove some of my tail risk, and, and that'll let me put more leverage onto it. Whereas now, if, if CDS prices are going up, it's like, okay, well, if they're just naturally now winding back that leverage, whether that just creates a bit of a downdraft and, and send yields a bit higher in, in the corporate market or not, or if there's... Yeah, and and I think yes to to an extent. Probably what we're more likely to see though is is maybe just bringing in the central bank piece here, uh, and saying with the base interest rate rising, and with the US expecting to be at around two percent at year end, um, that is you know credit spreads haven't moved much, but that base interest rate piece is really starting to move now. So that that definitely flows through to the cost of cost of leverage. Uh, it flows through to cost of capital and how you do your assumptions there. And so speculative activities that you could fund at, you know, close to a 0% base rate plus not a lot of margin. And you're now starting to think, well, maybe it's a 2% uh, in a year's time plus a decent margin on top. Um, yeah, the speculative activities start to look a lot less interesting and less rewarding now. So yeah. I, I think we're just... In a number of ways, central banks are kind of just tapping the brake pedal, um, and, and this this is really just the way they play the cycle, in my view, overplay the cycle. But yeah, we're now starting to see that flow through. Yeah, because I mean that's that's the interesting part where you know I was speaking to a hedge fund guy uh, who trades um, uh, forex and and um, and government bonds, and they're talking about the amount of leverage they put on and how how far they could be leveraged and. And they're sort of basically going, well, at zero interest rates, maybe it's infinity, you know, who knows? It's as much leverage as you want, as much as you're, you're capable. So, but then, you know, if it's infinity at zero, then, and it goes to 20, 25 basis points, then, you know, and then and rises from there. Obviously, there's a there's an effect where, and maybe that's where, where we've seen some weakness in the market already is that as these rates rise and, and it just, there's just a, a 
um, people who are just naturally winding back their 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 leverage. Um, yeah, and the reverse is, you know, obviously, true. if there's, um, uh, we've seen the, oh, sorry, in the other part, it's in the options market, we've seen volatility spike higher, which does the same thing. But, but I guess that's the, the flip side is if volatilities come back in, then people can then leverage up again and using those to, um, those to cover. Mm. Okay, so, um, so high yield spread. So I might, I might go, We'll, we'll move on to China in a minute, so let's let's come back to that later because that's obviously the sort of ground zero for for a lot of the 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 real spikes we've seen. Um, so, uh, although you said it hasn't been big, it, it's been I guess a double effect of interest rates are rising and spreads are, are rising as well. So there's a there's been a doubling of that. Um, is that you know, at what stage do you think that starts to create? funding pressures for for companies or are we still just really in the well you know if you could borrow at five percent before and now it's six and a half so you know net effect is actually actually not a lot unless you're really running it close to the line or do you think there's there's enough you know any sectors in particular that might have uh geared themselves enough that that it's going to start becoming a problem mm. uh I, I guess i would probably break it up in two ways so um, in Australia, uh, we, we have a very limited high yield market and a decent chunk of the high yield market, um, becoming less so, it's, it's developing here, but people would often run off to the US and, and get their, their most leverage loans from overseas. An example of that was Fortescue a number of years back when they weren't nearly as cash flow generative as they, they are now and the, the iron ore price crashed down. They ran off to the US to get some cheap high yield bonds uh, when they were in a tight spot, you know, you, you don't come looking to the Australian market for for cheap high yield funding well, when those things pop up. Yeah, and if if you're a Fortescue or something like that, it, um, you're getting paid in US dollars anyway. So you know, there's a there's a nice mismatch, which is probably a bit different though for for others. Yeah, correct, correct. But if you start looking overseas, then certainly US and Europe much much larger high yield markets. Um, the US is a great market to study. There's heaps of data that, that you can track. There's lots of commentary on it, lots of research out there. Um, high yield spreads actually haven't moved that much in, in the last you know, couple of months. Um, it, to me, on a comparative basis, investment grade spreads have moved more, but high yield is the place where the fun and games really happen. Because as you said, someone might've gone from cost of issuing debts gone from five to six and a half. Now that typically takes a couple of years to flow through because people have issued debt and, and you roll it over from time to time. So it's it's not all instantly going up. Um, some of the debt, the leverage loan side that's linked to LIBOR or an equivalent sort of uh, interbank overnight short-term rate, that's gonna really start ramping up through the course of this year in the US. So potentially from a you know close to zero base rate to a 2% base rate. That will start hitting their cost of funding if they haven't hedged that risk out. Uh, it will start hitting their cost of funding this year. And as you said, the ones who are on the margin, um, and there is a decent chunk, triple C issuance has been quite high in the last couple of years. And, and as a rough guide, a triple C rated borrower is someone who they're either you know one to one or perhaps they have less earning capacity than their interest bill. Um, now, if you're in that situation, you're obviously burning cash you're going backwards. And if the interest rate rises, you're going backwards faster. Now you throw into that the potential for a kind of stagflationary environment ahead of us. That's a stagnant economy, low growth, but plus inflation. 
you might be seeing your credit spreads go up. You're definitely seeing your base rate go up. Um, and you might not be seeing, you know, your, your revenues go up much after you take into account, you know, effectively your costs are going up as well. So your, your net margin hasn't moved. If all those things are coming together and, you, and you're tight on your debt, then it's it's a trip off to the bankruptcy court in the next couple of years if all those things play out for you. Um, the, the flip side to that in terms of the US market is you often will see headlines that will say something like US corporates have never been so cashed up before. And that is true. Um, the difference is there's a real barbell going on. So some US corporates have bucket loads of cash. Some US corporates have bucket loads of debt. Uh, the ones who have lots of debt, they're the ones who are exposed and, and will get hurt as rates rise. So we're not seeing the defaults come through yet. But through the course of this year, as the base rate moves up, um, the squeeze will start to, to come on uh, unless there's some sort of you know radical easing of conditions. Mm. Um, and, and I'm right in saying, though, that uh, uh, bankruptcies are still pretty low, like relative to, to history. Like it's still... Um, you know, I think last time we spoke about the idea that, look, uh, is some of this latent um, bankruptcies, but it does appear as if um, as if they're not. Like, I guess, I was going to say, there's been enough cash thrown around that, that you know, I guess that uh, the companies do look like they're getting through and, and, and we still haven't seen um, even a normal level of bankruptcies. Yeah, so certainly in the US, in the high yield market, it's it's been held back. That, that wave has been held back. And you can argue it's been held back for... 15 or 20 years you know the last good clean out was was perhaps the sort of telcos the tech wreck um you know with with the drop in interest rates around the financial crisis um companies that you know otherwise would have fallen over was was saved um so yeah there is that latency that's definitely built up the risk tolerance is built up so you know sort of a lot of triple c debt a lot of b minus rated debt has has been pushed into the market in the last five years um, so those are all corporates that are, you know, walking that balance beam and a strong gust one way or the other pushes them off. Um, so, yeah, I, I do believe that there's that build up there and we're starting to see the conditions that, that push for that to increase and for definitely a, the most leveraged ones to be under a lot of pressure. Right. Um, okay, so so then I guess ground zero, the, the Chinese developers, that's where... Um, uh, we're seeing you know, most of the exciting headlines, I guess, and and uh, you know, yields really have you know. You know, you're talking. I guess I feel like they probably could have borrowed it somewhere between five and seven percent a few years ago, and now it's more like fifteen to seventeen. Is it? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I mean, the, the way it, it sort of broke down at first was, oh, if your sub investment grade will forget it, you're on your own, no one's going to fund you anymore and you just all go off and default. And if your investment grade, oh, we think you're strong enough, we'll think you get through. Uh, and we're starting to see even some of the investment grade ones, uh, uh, you know, very poor financial foundations. Um, uh, we, we've discussed this one a little bit before, so I won't labour it too much, but, you, you know, the, the way they approached, um, the way they finance themselves, they run their businesses, a lot of the debt is short term, so it rolls over frequently so if the bad word gets out on you people don't roll the debt and you're in trouble very very quickly there's a lot of hidden guarantees um so that they're not think, reporting think, them the auditing standards awful yeah i think, I think evergrande found two billion dollars just this week didn't they that, that correct guaranteed to somebody that they didn't know about 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure Evergreen knew about it, but they didn't tell other right. people that they'd done it. Right. So that's that's a very common business practice in China is that, you know, I'll guarantee you're dead and I think you're good for it or, you know, perhaps I haven't done any due diligence at all. I just guarantee it because I want to. Um, and maybe you give me a small fee and then, you know, I'm finding out that, oh, hang on, you're actually not very solvent and uh, whatever I pledged, I'm, I'm handing over to clean up your situation. So that that is a, a sort of a big systemic risk that's built into the Chinese financial system that when, and I, I can't say when, but when we get that big clean out in China, it's just landmines going off everywhere and then you've got no idea who's going to be hit. Mm. Because they just don't have quality ordering standards, they don't have good disclosure, so you just don't know who's telling you the truth about who they owe and, and who they've guaranteed. Mm. And obviously, they're very pro-cyclical in terms of everyone. When debt goes up, everyone benefits. Local governments benefit. Um, uh, you know, the the person who's given you their deposit, you can effectively roll their deposit into the next person's, and, and yeah. Whereas when it all goes in reverse, you know, a lot of those. Um, yeah, well, those end up the opposite way. So, uh, someone described, you know, the um, the the Evergrande as as you know, one of the slowest slowest motion uh, defaults we've ever seen in terms of, um, you know, I guess the trouble was known about I don't know, maybe eighteen months ago at least. Well, I mean, that, I mean, most people knew they had so much debt, but I guess it really it came to the point where people were going, "This thing's going to default," you know, with with a fairly high amount of certainty. And then it seems as if it's um, the, the the Chinese government sort of is sort of going, okay, well, here's, you know, we're not going to let it fall over and then something else, but we're not going to bail it out. And then the next thing happens. And then it's sort of like just seems to just one step at a time and sort of getting people used to the idea, I suppose. And, and whether that means that because people are used to the idea over an 18 month period that, hey, this thing's going to fall over, is that maybe the day when it does, you don't get anywhere near the type of reaction as if, um, you know, 18 months ago, it suddenly just went boom, and and everyone was wondering what who's who's going to be next. I don't know what your thoughts are on on that as a as an outlook, and and I guess what you know, uh, they're the tip of the iceberg in the Chinese development market is is uh, I'm sure there's ones out there that are worse than them. Is is how how you sort of see that that playing out? Yeah, yeah. So. The, the Chinese financial system, um, we'll start, start with the basics. It is an emerging market. Um, it is, by a lot of aspects, it is a naive market in terms of the way people invest and the way people lend money. And I'll give you just one basic example. So property prices are crashing. Um, people are definitely you know, now sensing that this may not work, that the property just keeps going up and up, that, you know, that kind of inevitability that when you buy a property, you'll make money. People are now starting to question that. Um, the developers can't get debt, so they can't buy new sites. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of risk that over the next 12 months, they finish projects and do they just not do any more projects? What does that do fine or in Australia? That's, I guess that's maybe another podcast, but you know, there's a risk that the next 12 months is let's just finish the projects. We'll clear out as much as we can. And then if we fail at the end of it, at least we didn't fail as big as, as where we are now. So it's, it's a very naive environment. Um, and maybe just one example of that is that the Chinese local governments, you know, it varies across the country, but some of the estimates are, you know, 30% or more of their revenue comes from when they sell land to property developers. All, all the developers have stopped buying land. So that revenue stream has dried up. Uh, so 
if you're not getting that revenue from selling property, well, what do you do? Uh, one of the things that they have been doing quite a bit of is they turn around and they start like this quasi quasi independent, quasi family body, not the local government. And they say, okay, that body is going to buy the piece of land off us at this nice price. And the bank's going to lend us a good chunk of the money. So in effect, um, the bank's lending them money and it goes into the council. The council treats it as revenue. The problem is that separate entity, um, is, it, is it guaranteed by the local government? If it is, well, you know, the debt can just be called upon and the local government then goes broke. Um, or is it a separate vehicle uh, with just the assets supporting it? And if, if it is, well, the bank's potentially going to be in a whole lot of trouble down the road when they recognise that the value of that land is, is not what it was you know, artificially sold at to the local government's uh, quasi-independent entity. So rather than actually confront the fact that land prices have fallen, they're trying to skirt around that, keep the prices up, keep the revenue coming in, and are using debt to do it. Um, so in a way, Chinese banks are leading with their chin, taking the risk that they get the knockout punch and, and get blown up by doing these sort of crazy trades based on, in some cases, the old land prices that just don't hold up anymore. So that, that creates a system where essentially it functions okay and then you get to that point and it just snaps. And, and it functions okay, there's not a lot of defaults, the government's local governments, the national government are stepping in, bailing things out, moving chess pieces around, trying to keep on top of it. But at some point, it, it maybe gets too big for them to intervene and save. And then you start just, the, the whole foundations get taken out of things. And, and we've started to see that with the property developers that a lot of them can't roll their debt. So the, the government's kind of backed away from them and said, look, you're on your own, take your medicine. Um, but they're trying to, to limit that in a way by saying, okay, finish the project, hand over the unit. So, you know, mum and dad investigate something for their money. The, the issue is when they hand over the unit, is it of decent quality? Is it really finished? Um, and has mum and dad got something that they paid half a million dollars for that's now only worth $200,000? So in a short way, that's the Chinese financial system. It, it works really well. And at some point, all of the leverage, all of the short-term debt um, doesn't work anymore. It snaps. And, and we have the potential to see a, a real fast unwind and, and ugliness spread right across the economy. So yeah, so so and that's obviously one we've we've had on the podcast. You know, a lot ourselves are saying, you know, one area of, of real uh, we we can really see that a contagion risk could easily blow up um, is, is that Chinese market. But the flip side is, as you said, um, uh, it could be extended for without too much danger for for a long period of time still it does seem to me that um the messages you're getting from the chinese government are yeah everything's fine everything's fine you know that's fine we'll we'll, we'll sort stuff out and then but we, we, there's never been a suggestion that they're going to backstop these ones it's always been that no, no we put this in place houses are for living and not for speculation um it would seem that they would need to turn around and say, oh, we've changed our mind. Actually, houses are for speculation again, you know, in order to, to reverse the policies that sort of got them here in the first place. Yeah, they're making it up as they go along. I don't think we, we need to be too political about it. They're, they just change their tune as things unwind that they didn't really understand. That, that's what it looks like as an outsider. I, I don't think it looks like people who are, 
you know, chess grandmasters moving pieces around and, you know, playing a game where they've got a strategy and they're executing it. It, it looks like people who really don't understand what deeply happens in financial markets, how to lend money, how to get it back. They just keep stepping in and, and bailing things out a little bit, trying to give people reassurance, keep the wheels turning. In in some ways, people people talk about authoritarian governments, you know, the Russians, the Chinese, and say, oh, well, they've got these great long-term plans. They can do things, you know, 10-year, 20-year things that we can't do in the West because we've got three-year elections. Well, they're subject to the same sorts of pressures. They're trying to deal with these things that pop up um, because whether it's Putin with Ukraine and, and all the financial sanctions, whether it's China with the prosperity and and the kind of unwritten deal is as long as Chinese people keep getting wealthier, communism's okay. They'll deal with a government that tells them what to do. Well, if the wealth and prosperity unravels, do people turn on the government? And if that happens, you know, it's, it's, it's always easy to say, well, you just send the troops out, you send the police out and you make things happen. But if the police and the army start to see their families become impoverished, how long do they keep supporting the government? So those are the sorts of things that, you know, you run the risk of that authoritarian governments still need to have their ear to the ground on, on what the average person is thinking and feeling. Um, and they're trying to massage it through. They're trying to say, it's not too bad. Don't don't worry, you'll, you'll keep doing well. But the foundations of, of the Chinese economy are, are built on debt, um, set up often in very poor ways. So there is the risk that it really un- unravels at some point, which then leads to the risk that the government unravels as a result of that. And, and it's also interesting that, that you know, as a, you know, the, the motivations of the local government um, are that they're, they've got, they're being squeezed from a number of different sides. One side is they've got a bunch of property developer mates who, who have largely made them very, very rich over the, over the recent time who are all begging for, for, for support or whatever it is. Um, they're being told by central governments, you know, yeah, we want you to do five and a half percent growth this year. And so much of the economy of 30 percent ish sort of comes from property sort of larger than any other sector. But on the flip side as well is if you're a local government who goes broke because you took on too much debt and all that type of stuff, then, you know, you can genuinely be lined up against the wall. Like it's not, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, there are people who, who get executed for, for doing the wrong thing and, 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 you know, whether it's usually it's fraud type stuff, but there's, there's genuinely, um, extremely severe consequences for officials who, who stuff up. And so, you know, if it's a choice between, do I risk my own, you know, freedom and, and potentially life on bailing out a bunch of property developer mates in order to hit growth targets, then, um, you would seem to, you know, the expectation for me would be the answer is no, I'm going to try and fudge my growth targets in some other way and shift assets around and try and, you know, make up the growth from, from, from other places where, you know, I'm not as much at risk of something if it, if it all starts falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's correct. And um, yeah, whether it's at the local government level or the national government level, obviously the national government has the ability to, to print money and, and kind of solve problems that way. Um, I, I say solve in, in quotations there in that uh, obviously you can hand out the money, but then you get the inflation issues that we're, we're definitely starting to see now globally that you know, people were told they were Cassandra's for saying don't print money. You know, these are the problems you get. And, you know, US inflation, CPI up near 8%. Uh, I think we're getting some evidence of that now that uh, people can't ignore. So, um, okay, so, that's, so, so the, the next question then is, um, 
so we're looking at there was sort of three sets of stimulus, I guess, that we had. One was um, interest rates got smashed to zero. Um, secondly, a bunch of money printing um, in terms of buying uh, government debt. And thirdly was um, uh, governments throwing a lot of fiscal spending at um, at their populations. It looks like all three of them are being withdrawn. Well, actually, the money printing hasn't really sort of stopped yet, has it? But but certainly the, the, the fiscal side is, is coming to a screeching halt, it seems. Um, the monetary side started to rise and, and quite possibly the money printing side um, and actually owning bonds will, will also start to be you know, wound back. Um, it seems concerning to me that all three are being done at once and there's a, the potential for, um, for, for overdoing that. I'd be interested or, or, or is it that um, too much has been done already and, and, and actually they do need to be, you know, they need to be moving faster on, on this. Yeah, I've, I've always been in the camp of central banks have done far too much for the last five, 10 years, far, far too much, uh, too much money printing, interest rates were too low. Um, essentially, what that does in a very simple way, it drags demand forward. Uh, so, you know, there's an old saying that um, debt is consumption brought forward. And that's, that's essentially what central banks have encouraged. So by pulling interest rates down, projects and investments that would not have got funded get funded because there's cheap interest rates. Um, people who would have done something boring, like maybe a term deposit uh, in the olden days, well, a while ago anyway, uh, where you might have got four or five percent on a term deposit. Now you're getting close to nothing. So they say, well, what do I what do I do now? Well, an investment grade bond fund doesn't help. Government bonds don't help. That's um, and, and some of those got caught up in things like Mayfair Platinum, James Mawinney and, and, and losing money in um, real estate schemes that were just very poorly structured and, and doing sorts of all sorts of wild things to try and get people a yield. But, but, but keeping in mind all those examples you said there are generally ones that in, in a relatively benign environment were blowing up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess we only saw the most spivvy of the, the those sort of funds get, get blown up yeah. previously. But there, there is the risk as interest rates and credit spreads go up, uh, a lot more of those funds get, get hammered. So one of the classic, um, you know, macro uh, sorts of plays is that uh, people who are US dollar owners will say, oh, I'm not getting much. Oh, let's look at emerging markets. Let's see what we can get there. And they'll take a punt on emerging market debts. And then as interest rates go up, they start saying, oh, let's bring it back. We can get a decent return in the US. We don't need to worry about those, those sort of half-developed countries anymore. Uh, and that's a, that's a cycle that's gone on for, for decades of just seeing the currency go out, seeing it come back. Uh, you know, Asian financial crisis was, was a classic example of people chasing returns. They chase too hard and then it all unwinds. Um, so we've pulled consumption forward. We've pulled investment forward. Um, the, the natural way to undo that, you can either bleed it out slowly and, and very rarely is that what happens. It, it's much... Much more commonly, it's sharper, and that's called a recession. Um, so the stagflation is kind of like we'll bleed it out with inflation and low growth. Um, a recession is actually let's flush it out and move on quickly. Um, and certainly from my perspective, if you look at economies that have tried to bleed it out, you just hurt for, for a decade or two decades. If you look at economies that have just ripped the Band-Aid off, so... I think of good examples there are South Korea and the Asian financial crisis and Iceland around 2009. They just tore the Band-Aid off, defaults widespread, you know, economies that might fall by 25, 30% GDP drop in a very short space of time. 
But you look at those countries that did that, and, and usually in around seven years, they get back to where they were. So they had a lot of fake growth in my mind because all this stimulus, you create this fake growth. It's like taking steroids. You know, you're know, you much stronger than you should be. Um, and then you take the steroids off and your strength just shrinks. Well, it's like that with economies. And so the ones who rip the Band-Aid off take the defaults, you know, sort of seven to 10 years, you clean it up and then you're back to normal. The ones who don't, it's just decades of struggling along. And, and probably Japan's a really good example of going nowhere for nearly 30 years. Uh, because they just won't take the the medicine. And, and, and as much as taking the medicine sounds like a good idea for for a politician, you know, seven to ten years is two election cycles, and so um, yeah, if I can keep things just not not Im, not imploding for another, you know, another year until the next election, and then we'll sort it all out after that. Yeah, that's um, short termism. Um, okay, so. Uh, the other thought, though, on that is, and one we've been speaking a bit about, um, is this idea that it's a whole financialization, I suppose, in terms of saying, um, effectively, what happened is we've turned our central bankers into bubble managers in terms of saying, yeah, do you want the bubble to, to be expanding or do you want the bubble to be contracting slightly and then expanding again? Like, there's not a, so so it's this idea of the whole trickle down and we need to keep markets high so that, um, so it keeps animal spirits up and that'll keep everything ticking along because everything's so precarious that if markets do crash, then the whole thing could, could get unwound. Um, I don't know whether and that's a sort of a, a different take on, on it because ordinarily, you know, monetary policy um, would take 18 months to, to, to actually, till it, till it actually bites. Um, but with the idea of financialization is that it actually happens a lot faster because um, the effect flows straight through to the financial markets, which then, you know, impact on, on investment spending or, or things like that. Um, now it's, it's more unsustainable and I don't think it's the right way to run an economy, um, you know, to try to manage a bubble, but it does seem as if that's what we're doing. Um, you know, when um, Powell sort of started, he said, you know, I'm not here to, for markets. I'm here for, for ordinary people. And then markets, um, he tried to raise rates, markets fell 20% and he quickly decided that actually he was here for markets, he, you know. Um, do you think he's had a change of heart or do you, uh, you know, if, if markets say, if he keeps raising rates and markets all of a sudden panic about the, the an oncoming recession and fall 20%, do you do you think they'll, he'll pretty quickly reverse again or um, or is it, you know, is he, is he for real? Good question. Um, I, I won't pretend to be the person who's most connected and, and, and best at reading the central bank tea leaves. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting for me was after he was essentially given a new term recently, he came out and the first thing he said was, we have to do something about inflation. And pretty much up to that point before he was confirmed, it was just, it's transitory. Yeah, don't, don't be too worried. And then coming out of that, it was, no, no, we've got to get on top of this. And what it, what it kind of smelt like was the politicians had got in his ear and said, no, inflation is getting too high. You've got to do something. Uh, the politicians recognise it's a problem they're going to get blamed for. Uh, so they want to see the central bank starting to take action. Now, obviously, if you start getting towards recession territory, then politicians can very quickly change their tune and be happy with a whole bunch of problems to, to try and avoid the recession. But you are correct. Over the last 20, 30 years, people have expected that central banks uh, are magicians who can pull levers in such a way that we don't have to have recessions anymore. Um, and if I can use an Australian analogy, it's it's it, there's kind of two schools of thoughts about bushfires. One is they're going to happen, 
Um, so it's better to have them regularly and small. The other is we don't do anything about them. We, we just let it, we let all the leaf litter build up over years and years and years, uh, and we pretend it's not there. And then when you have that situation, that's when you get massive roaring bushfires that, that wipe out a whole bunch of things. So there's kind of two schools of thought. Um, I'm definitely, in terms of economics, of the school of thought that um, recessions um, always used to be common. Um, you know, some were more severe than others, but that sort of seven-year on average business cycle was the way the US thought for a long time, that recessions would come. They would clean out the stupid uh, stupid investments, stupid activities, the people who were too speculative. They'll get wiped out. Um, the rest of us will suffer a little bit, but then we clean that out and then the economy grows strongly again. Uh, what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years is we won't have recessions. The governments are constantly trying to protect against that. So we've seen productivity fall. Uh, and so the central bank interventions have slowed down the rate of growth in economies, in my view. Um, you know, people's wages are not growing and there's people are upset about that. And yes, inflation up until recently was low, so low wage growth wasn't too bad. But we certainly haven't been seeing the productivity that we saw, you know, say in the 1990s in Australia. Um, and we certainly haven't been seeing whether it's the financial market conditions or governments doing productivity reform, tax reform, all those hard things, um, we, we just haven't been willing to have those conversations and do those hard things. So we've essentially stored up a bunch of problems for ourselves. Hmm. Yes, we need, we need a good crisis so we can actually change things. Which, yeah. which unfortunately we had one of those in 2008 through to 2010 and it got squandered. The opportunity was just wasted. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's move on to Australia, but just through the acknowledging time. So, um, I guess funding availability and sort of cost of bank debt is on is on the rise in Australia. Um, so, as you're looking through your investments, what did you know, I guess what are you looking for in terms of um, in the in the debt markets? Which which areas are you focused on, and, and which areas you you um, definitely avoiding? Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, we are seeing funding costs rise for banks and securitization. That has jumped quite noticeably in the last four or five months. Um, so the RBA stopped giving cheap funding to banks. Quantitative easing is, is going to sort of pull back on that. So that easy flow of money from the government is slowing. Um, what the RBA will accept as collateral has changed. And so that's now state government debt, local government debt are the priority and things like securitization and bank debt are off the list um, later this year. So there's been a whole bunch of changes that have flowed through. Um, Essentially, what that means is the cost of getting the capital that funds most of your home loan has gone up. Not The base rate really hasn't moved that much yet. It, it's likely to move through the course of this year as the RBA puts some increases through. But that credit spread component that banks are using to borrow to fund your mortgage has already started to go up. Um, so I think it's possible that um, prior to, let's say, it might be June or July or August, that, that kind of area where the market's generally saying we'll get a first, first increase from the RBA, we might actually see funders start pushing those costs through um, to borrowers. Um, you, you might get effectively 25 bips or thereabouts of rate increase come through before the RBA moves. And then when the RBA moves, you just get ticks up with that. Um, so that cost of funding is already starting to flow through. In the big scheme of things, it's not a huge deal. You know, if you've got a cut price mortgage to two and it goes to 225, it's it's not a big deal unless you're super leveraged. 
Um, but it's just more a sign that things have changed, that the QE is not there, the demand that used to be there for those those assets is not there. Um, and the risk really hasn't changed that much. But people like myself who are investing in those sort of AAA, AA parts of the capital structure, um, that, that's become you know, a decent amount more lucrative um, in the last three, four months. It, it's still low in the grand scheme of things, but just as an example, um, you know, bonds that, you know, back end of last year used to get paid, you know, say cash rate plus 120 to 130. Well, now you're looking at about 190 on those. So, you know, very soon we might be getting 2% on what we used to get 1.3%. So if you look at those sorts of things and you start pushing that through, then yeah, 25 bips coming through on your home loan prior to the RBA increasing is, is one sort of logical outcome to that. Um, so it's not huge. The cash rate moves will be the bigger thing though um, in time. And how far would do you think cash rate would have to move until um, we start creating these stresses? Because I guess, um, yeah, as you spoke, it's a bit of a barbell. There's, there's people out there, uh, lots of property, debt-free, all that type of stuff who are like, yeah, okay, interest rates are up. It doesn't really matter. Um, whereas it's the people, I guess, who've bought in recently at 90% leverage and those types of things that are the first ones to fall into trouble. Um, is it, you know, 1%? rise in interest rates to start causing problems or is it less than that? Does it need to go to 2%? Where's your sort of feel on the the the, the rough figure that we need to get to, to to start causing problems? Well, as a guide, um, APRA asked banks to assess people based on the current interest rate plus 3%. It used to be 2.5% not that long ago. So if I say, well, 50 basis points of funding costs plus 2% on the cash rate, there's your 25 that's probably a pinch point that starts to come through. Um, so they, the bank should be should have been testing on that for the last three or four years at least. So in that sense, there's probably that buffer of maybe two percent on the cash rate before people really start to to start to squeal. Um, the thing though is that when they do the surveys, which they I think there's one group that does it every six months or every year, and they say how many people have lied to their mortgage broker and lied to their bank to get a home loan. And it's usually something like a third or 40% have been telling lies about their revenue and expenses. Uh, those people will squeal much earlier than, than you know, a, a 2% cash rate increase. Um, the, the other ones to watch out for, and if you're in this camp, um, yeah, the, this is to me the one that, that really has potential to get knocked in the head, um, is, is those people you see who are like, oh, 10 years ago, I have nothing, but now I own 10 houses. And yes, they do own 10 houses, but they also own, own you know, six or 10 banks, a whole bunch of money. Uh, and every time the house price has gone up, they've taken an equity and gone and bought another one. Those people are the ones who, who really get squeezed quite hard because they might have 75 or 80% debt across their whole portfolio. They'll start seeing house prices, you know, they have come off a bit. That sort of uber bullishness has, has dropped out. The auctions aren't as hot as they used to be. So that's maybe five or 10% off from the peak. You start seeing those house prices come down. You start seeing interest rates rise. Um, those are the people who their, uh, their amount of income they have relative to the interest they owe the bank, that ratio is quite high. They're the ones who really get squeezed first. Uh, and so instead of owning 10, maybe they've got to very quickly sell three or four to try and get on top of the debt. And there's also the um, obviously that you know most people anyone who's been to a, a petrol bowser in in the last couple of weeks as well would have noticed that um, yeah 
you have a, if you had a bit of a spare room, or you know, that's, a chunk of that's probably gone to to the petrol bowser and potentially to to other costs, um, you know, over the next little while. If um, if we do start seeing, not that we've seen heaps of inflation in Australia, but if we do start seeing it um, flow through here, then then obviously that yeah, helps to wind you back as well. Um, hey guys, so, we've just got a, we've got a couple of viewer questions here. Uh, so I guess you've touched on this a bit already, but in terms of the Australian economy, uh, how much risk or how risky is the level of private debt? So that, that's the first question. And then there's another question here. Uh, can defaults in New Zealand cause contagion for Australia with banks being so closely linked? I'll touch on the private debt first. Uh, again, at the risk of a risk of being like Ben Bernanke, private debt in Australia is, is quite small. Compared to Europe, the US and Asia, private debt is, is quite small here. Um, so I think the, the contagion risk from that uh, is much lower. Um, generally, there isn't the leverage on leverage kind of thing. So for instance, you take something that's really racing the private debt space, and that would be mezzanine debt on construction. Now that construction. And, and sorry, actually, when you're saying private debt here, you're talking about private company debt, or are you talking about private debt including consumer debt? Uh, so it's debt that's done away from the general public realm. It's, right. it's where okay. two parties yeah. kind of form a relationship. Yeah, yeah, no, that is fine. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't. Yeah, you're not talking about. Um, you're not talking about people's home loans and Australia's debt debt in terms of that. This is this is corporates. Yep. Yeah, predominantly yeah. corporates. There, there is a bit of. Uh, and I guess I work on what what I often say is like the edge of private debt in Australia, the, the boring low-risk end of it. So some of that involves, for instance, um, classic story would be uh, Chinese-based uh, citizen, resident, uh, buys a luxury house in Sydney or Melbourne. Let's say it's worth $10 million, They borrow $4 million. Um, You know, 40% of your it's, it's quite low. The risk of losing money on that's quite low. But instead of a Instead of paying, say, 2.5% to a bank, they'll do it in a private debt style format. That is, you know, away from the banks, away from the mainstream lenders. Um, and that might cost them 7 or 8% sometimes to, to do that sort of debt. Um, so that, I guess I, I say I operate more at the, the boring end of private debt. Um, then from there, you sort of step up to senior ranking debt in construction. Mezzanine debt in construction is... is then there's the sort of leverage finance type and, piece. And actually, let's just, just to define that for people, the mezzanine debt is like the, the middle slice of debt and it's the, the debt which is, um, you know, you've, you've, you've done everything. You've, you've got your banking finance for your you've mortgaged the property already and you, you need some extra money just to finish off the, the, the apartments and you can't get it anymore from your bank. And so you're trying to take an extra slice just to finish it to get actually get out and sell it. And so, which I think usually you want 15% plus. Is that sort of... A rough guide for mezzanine yeah. debt. So, yeah, as you said, this is a debt where you know, you, you don't take out a fifteen percent debt because because you want to. You take it out because you have to. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to yeah, you lose the whole thing. Yeah, sorry. Correct, correct. So, uh, I guess that on the on the private debt side, particularly that construction piece, that is a a very interesting space to follow. So we are seeing builders fall over, no doubt about that. The construction space is under huge pressure and it's really simple to understand. If you've agreed a fixed price contract and the price of your labor goes up by 20 to 40%, you know, your contractors are super busy. So they're saying, well, no, you've got to pay me a lot more. And uh, the 
cost of your materials has gone up by 20 to 40 percent your margin was five to ten percent well you're in a world of pain so a lot of builders are in trouble um, we're going to keep seeing them fall over you know based on everything we can see in the, the public realm at the moment there's, there's more to come so if you're the mezzanine debt you're that kind of meat in the sandwich sort of scenario the equity of the project might be in real trouble because they've lost their margin that they thought they were going to get they're, they're underwater so their ability to put more in is, is crucial at this point will they save the project keep it going finish or will they just put their hands up and walk away if they do as mezzanine debt then what are you going to do to finish the project or do you even do you have the ability to finish the project um, will the senior lender allow you to finish the project so something like that has been a great game you know getting that 15 to 20 percent for the last five or so years well all of a sudden now with with builders falling over we're seeing that's why you got paid 15 to 20 percent because the risks are really coming home to roost now so but that is, I guess I'd say a couple of things. That is generally a fairly small space in terms of the investment universe in Australia. Um, it is generally private family money and it's extremely unlikely to be leveraged. So effectively, it's it's like you buy a share with, with, with your $100, you buy, you know, you lend mezzanine debt with your $100, but you don't take leverage on top of that. It's It's just meant to return enough as it is. So Usually when, when you get systemic issues, it's because there's been a, a wave of leverage that's fallen apart very quickly. Um, I think this is one of those situations where, yes, things will, will be tough in the sector, but people have generally lent just what they've got, not levered it up to, to try and increase the returns. So that, that usually just leads to a shakeout of the sector rather than a wholesale failure. And, and I guess within that context margin lending which is effectively loaning your money out on your shares is is relatively high it's not super super high but it's it's pretty high at the moment in terms of so that's that's why on shares you know there's obviously that risk but um and, and i'm guessing though that like if you went back to say 1990 for example that would have been a bit of a feature of the whole you know explosion was just layers and layers upon debt and, and similar in 2008 for um the u.s housing market and, and places like um uh, Alco and and Babcock and Brown in Australia was um, yeah it wasn't the first level of debt that undid you it was the fact that there was debt laid upon debt laid upon debt laid upon debt that every single vehicle had its own yeah gearing which yeah okay excellent um, and so within Australia then uh, oh sorry Sam was there other questions yeah yeah so the the second part of the question uh, the second question was uh, in regards to uh, can defaults in New Zealand cause contagion for Australia with the banks being so closely linked? Uh, technically, yes, they can. They, they could fly over. You could see, uh, you know, the four major banks which have got operations in New Zealand get pulled undone somewhat by New Zealand. Uh, one of the helpful things is that the New Zealand regulator, uh, banking regulator, the equivalent of APRA here, is quite strict and it demands a lot of capital in place um, which is from a i guess when you give marks to regulators you give high marks to regulators that insist that high risk activities are met with a lot of capital so uh, i think there's there's a level a good level of buffer there um, but I'll, I'll probably keep my comments brief because i don't hold myself out as an expert on the new zealand economy um, i've had a nice holiday there once but i really can't talk too much more about the country 
Excellent. Thanks for that. Uh, that, That's it for now. What we'll do is we'll go to the viewer question of the week. Uh, So this is for for um, for our audience just to have a bit of a chat with uh, with each other over the coming week. Uh, So the question is, how high can interest rates rise before defaults start in earnest? Uh, So feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of our other viewers over the coming days. So Jonathan Uh, said 2%. That's taking the under or the over on that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, uh, Damien, I'll hand it back to you for the investment implications. Yeah, sure. Look, I think the main thing for the investment implications this week... um, or the investment outlook. I just wanted to highlight that, you know, that exactly what Jonathan was talking about in terms of these rising rates and probability of Fed error is that the the environment we have ourselves in, in terms of supply chain issues, um, causing you know, inflation is this mix, mismatch between supply and demand. And so demand is not particularly high, but we've got a lot of supply chain issues. And so really what we do need to do is bring that, um, if, if they are genuine about, bring inflation they really need to bring demand back down to the level of supply and and there's been a lot of pro- had a lot of problems getting demand um you know we've had a weakness in demand for 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 many many years and so um and and on top of that we've got this this mix between financialization which um you know if markets fall then does demand fall and everything like that or do we have to wait 18 months to see the result so we've just raised rates by 25 basis points um in the us do you have to wait 18 months to, to actually see the effect of that um, and, and all these, um, so all these issues, plus you add in um, the Ukraine and, and Russia and, and things like that, is that the, there's a pretty good chance of a Fed error. And, um, you know, they've, they've left themselves a, you'd have to say, a, an extremely narrow path to a, to, a, to a soft landing. And I guess that's the issue. That's the big issue we're seeing is that, um, uh, yeah, is that it's almost as if um, the Fed will need to raise rates until they start seeing demand weaken, at which time markets are probably going to tumble. And um, if, if that's the case, then uh, we'll go back to that question I asked uh, Jonathan before is, does the Fed turn around and support markets or do they do they, do they try to actually genuinely let a, a recession happen and, and get this clear out? Um, then we add in the Chinese developers we spoke about, um, you know, and that's still a major risk to to commodities. And 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 as we spoke about, you know, that, that could be something that could fall over and 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 be the the pin that's that's, that's going to pop a lot of these um, bubbles. Uh, we have Russia and the Ukraine sanctions sort of increasing the chance of a left field event, um, a hedge fund somewhere blowing up that has um, you know more leverage than people knew. Uh, and so you know all these factors are sort of sitting over the top of investments. Um, Valuations are expensive in terms of the stock market. Uh, they're not as bad as they were, certainly not as bad as they were um, you know, 12 months ago. But 12 months ago, we had pretty strong earnings growth. So um, they're expensive. They're not, you know, they're better than they were. But if earnings start to decline or start to roll over, which is a, a, a real chance, um, then uh, they're way too high for that. So, uh, so yeah, so I guess from our perspective, we're still holding on to lots of cash. We, we do want to sort of switch that into to equities at some point, but um, even though we've seen a, a reasonable pullback, um, we're still not ready to, uh, to start deploying that yet. We still think there's a, a number of risks that are, that are out there that have yet to, uh, yet to materialize. So yeah, so I might leave it at that. So unless there's any questions. Uh, that's, that's all the questions for, for, for now. So yeah, uh, Jonathan, just want to thank you for coming on the show and uh, sharing your knowledge. It's been a pleasure to have you here. 
Much appreciated. Uh, it's always good to catch up with you guys and uh, there's definitely some interesting things going on. So it was a timely call. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And uh, Damo, just uh, thank you for sharing your insights and knowledge as always. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so we do welcome your feedback on the show, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. Uh, if you do have any ideas, please drop it in the YouTube comments below or send us an email at contact at nucleuswealth.com. Just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your specific situation. Uh, if you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com and book a call with me or one of the team. Uh, so today, I just want to take a moment to showcase our unique screens. Nucleus Wealth has around 50 ethical sector and asset class screens that allow our clients to customize their portfolios based on their individual values and beliefs. You can have a look at these here on our website at nucleuswealth.com forward slash ethical. And these screens can be utilized across all our active and passive portfolios. So you can truly tailor your investments to your individual preferences. So today I just wanna specifically show you our climate change screen. Uh, so you can see the different options uh, with all the, um, you know, you can screen out all the stocks to do with fossil fuels or just the worst offenders. Uh, you can also screen out coal seam gas or fracking, uh, nuclear power, and the option for no old growth forest logging. Uh, on our website, it gives more detail about how each category is defined and the sort of stocks that it would exclude. Uh, so just a recent example, uh, a client that I was talking to recently, uh, they screened out all fossil fuels, but were happy to have nuclear power stocks in there as they perceive that to be a cleaner source of energy, the fossil fuels, and were comfortable with technology. So you can see you can really customize your portfolio uh, however you see fit. Uh, so that's just a little bit about our screens there. So uh, finally, don't forget to like our video now. And uh, if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, would really appreciate it if you can please share it with them. Also, if you'd like to see more of our previous episodes and content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content. And to stay up to date with us, uh, you can also follow us on all major social media. So for myself, Damien, Jonathan, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.